Let's go ahead and grab a Bible and turn to the book of Ruth. If uh, you don't have a Bible, throw up a hand or look around you. There should be one on a chair within reach. Again, if you can't find one, put a hand up and uh, one of our ushers will come by and put a Bible in your hand so you can study along with us as we continue in our time of worship through our study of the Word of God. Ruth is the eighth book in the Bible after the book of Judges before 1 Samuel. Judges, Ruth. We're doing a verse-by-verse study through the book of Ruth. And we're in chapter 3 this morning, and we'll take probably two-ish weeks to go through chapter 4, Lord willing. Before we do, as you're turning there, I wanted to, to highlight our uh, reformer of the, of the week in your uh, bulletin. If you'd break this out real quick, uh, Brian, mentioned it real, Brian mentioned it briefly during announcements. Again, if you're uh, just joining us here, welcome. We're, since this is the 500th, uh, October 31st is the 500th anniversary of uh, the, one of the greatest movements of God in all of church history since the church was born in Acts chapter 2. We're highlighting those individuals God used mightily during the Protestant Reformation. This morning is Lady Jane Grey. Um, you can find these at the Cripple Gate. I, wanna, I just want to read this to you and have you follow along so our hearts, our hearts will be encouraged during this Reformation month, these various individuals. We certainly won't be able to capture all of them, but just a few here. Follow along as I read. This quote from Lady Jane Grey, How can it be that the bread is our maker when the baker made it? Who then made the baker? That was a quote in refuting uh, Bloody Mary, Mary Tudor, the, uh, the Romanist queen who ousted Lady Jane Grey when they were arguing about the nature of the Lord's Supper. Lady Jane Grey, 1537 to 1554, is known as the nine-day queen of England. A distant relative of Henry VIII, she spent much of her childhood in the king's court being groomed to marry, to marry Edward, the next in line for the throne. By age seven, both she and Edward knew Latin and Greek, and through reading the New Testament, both had been converted to Christ. Edward became king as a boy, died a few years later, likely poisoned by one of his advisors, resulting in Lady Jane becoming queen. Queen Jane knew nothing of the order of succession and came to the throne reluctantly. But she realized that if she took a stand for Christ and against the mass, she could leave a mark on England, and certainly she did. After only nine days, Lady uh, Jane was betrayed by her father and overthrown by her Spanish and Catholic cousin Mary. This is Bloody Mary, Mary I. And, excuse me, imprisoned, she was offered mercy if only she would take the mass. Instead, she publicly debated Mary's chaplain about transubstantiation. Uh, By all accounts, the 17-year-old girl won the debate for which she would lose her life. And by the way, if you read the quotes from that debate, reading Lady Jane, who was 16, 17 at the time, it's like you're reading the most profound theologian you've ever read, the 16-year-old girl. It's, it's, it's fascinating, very uplifting. Uh, shortly after, after she was beheaded uh, for refusing to take the Roman Catholic Mass, Jane's legacy is seen in the fact that after Bloody Mary's death, England would never again be a Catholic nation. English history was forever changed by the gospel-fueled martyrdom of a teenage queen much more to her life, but may we just give thanks to God for how he used these individuals to rediscover the gospel, the true gospel of salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone, to the glory of God alone, and bringing the word of God out of darkness. And one of the gifts of God uh, that we have from the Reformation, not only owning a copy of our, our own copy of the word of God, but getting to study it verse by verse in a language that we know. That was a foreign concept uh, when, during the centuries of Roman Catholicism, and so we will enjoy that by the grace of God this morning in our study through the book of Ruth. As I mentioned, we are in chapter 3. Ru- 
Ruth chapter 3. Well, have you ever been faced with a situation where there was, you had to make a decision and there was a risk involved? You didn't know what the outcome would be. Probably you, all of you haven't many times over. A decision where things could easily turn out bad. In fact, likely they would turn out bad. Where God did not sort of script a perfect outcome for you beforehand, before you made the decision. Where God didn't say, okay, I know this is hard now, but it's going to work out, and here's why, number one, number two, number three. Have you been in that before? Where there was nothing to do but to throw yourself onto the sovereignty and the goodness and the grace of God. This is the case in Ruth chapter 3. Taking a risky step of faith that from all human standpoint, it looks like this is going to turn out really bad. A risky step of faith that may or may not work out. They don't know what's going to happen. That is what we see in this morning's text. We will read the text verse by verse and study as we travel through it. A little bit of background if you haven't been with us in this wonderful book. Daniel Block has said of the book of Ruth, Ruth is widely recognized as a superlative literary achievement of ancient Israel. As a piece of literature, it is one of the most delightful pieces ever produced. Remember that the, uh, this, this factual account here, this inerrant account, took place about 1100-ish B.C., uh, a difficult time of suffering in the time of Israel, a time of uncertainty. All of this happened during the days of Judges, and so Ruth is right after Judges for a reason. It happened during that time, this time of widespread apathy among the people of God and, and gross widespread cultural immorality, as recorded in the book of Judges. A little bit of background but even prior to that reminder that God had graciously and, and powerfully rescued his oppressed and enslaved people, Israel, about a couple million of them, out of the nation of Egypt, 1500-ish B.C., by no power of their own. It was all God. And after saving them, after showing them his grace, uh, God makes a covenant with them, sometimes called the, the Mosaic Covenant. Among other places, the stipulations of which are laid out in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy, a critical book to understand, for understanding Ruth, the Old Testament and the whole Bible for that matter. It was Jesus' favorite book to quote from. But there are responsibilities for receiving grace. God rescues them, then gives them these stipulations where they would have to uh, obey these, the, the, the word of God. And if they didn't, Things like their, their crops would fail, their military would fail, their economy would fail, and they would not enjoy the, the, the protection and the grace of God. But if not, if they would obey, then they would enjoy these things. So for a few hundred years, they grew calloused in heart towards God. God keeps his word. For better or worse, God keeps his word. There is a famine, as Ruth 1 starts out, a terrible famine. And so this gal, Naomi, her husband, Elimelech, turns very pragmatic and says, well, we're going to ditch God's land, though they were to stay there. And they go into the land of Moab, which was strictly forbidden. They have two sons who they allow to marry Moabite women, again forbidden, so they are forsaking God. 
And tragedy hits hard. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies. Their two sons, Malon and Kilion, die. After they marry the Moabite women and they die childless, all of these were curses that were in the Deuteronomy uh, 28 covenant stipulations. A a time of great suffering. So you have these two widows. Uh, You have Naomi and Ruth, the widow of her other son, of Kilion, went back into Moab. So recall in Ruth one twenty, when Naomi comes back, she says, they say, oh, you've come back to Bethlehem. She's gone for about 10 years. And they say, Naomi's here. She says, don't call me Naomi. Her name means like pleasant or delight. She says, call me what? Mara, which means bitter. For the Lord has, has dealt very bitterly with me. I left full and I've come back empty. So she is in bitterness and despair, but the Lord has not forgotten her. Bitterness will never have victory ultimately over God's people. Despair will never be the final word for God's people because though there is, the weeping may last through the night, Psalm 30 verse 5, there is joy in the morning. And the dawn of the morning is shining on Naomi. They've returned from Moab. They don't know how they're going to eat. I don't know if very many of us have faced that, faced that obstacle, but God provides a harvest. It's a, it's a sign that he's lifting the curses for a moment. His grace is shining again on the land. There is a harvest in Israel. And not only harvest, but Ruth says, okay, we need food. I'm going to go glean where they would pick up the scraps from the field that in Israel they, weren't to, they, were, to cut, they were not to cut the corners and leave them there for the poor. Ruth goes and, and happens to land Chapter 2, as we studied, it happens to land in the field of a true worshiper of God, of a man who loves the word of God. And this was not a dime a dozen in the day of, of, of judges. This is a, a needle in a haystack. And there's a man who worships God and is kind to Ruth, a Moabite widow. And Boaz tells his employees, let this widow Ruth pick up as much scraps as she wants, even throw some in the ground. Don't touch her. And that's fine and good. But what will Ruth and Naomi do when the harvest is over? This is the problem and the tension when chapter 2 ends. And by the way, recall Ruth is one story, factual account. We're sort of in the middle of this drama. And it's leading up to something very very God-centered and and messianic-centered. But there's some drama and some kind of funny details to get to before that. So we'll enjoy that by the grace of God as we study this. So Naomi makes this observation. By the way, this guy Boaz happens to be this thing called a redeemer. We'll talk a little bit about that more today and much more next week, Lord willing. The scene closes. Redeemer, what is this all about? Well, big idea, if you were to sort of crystallize a, a big, big idea principle from this chapter, Ruth chapter 3, it's in your bulletin, it's this. That God is our strength. God is our strength during uncertain and risky circumstances. God is our only strength. He's our strength during certain and not risky circumstances. Certainly he is during certain uncertain and risky circumstances. So we'll study verse by verse and then make some observations at the end. We would note at the outset that this passage is... Not about dating, despite what we may have observed in Ruth chapter 3. There's some helpful principles 
along those lines. And we would recall that since these events took place over 3,000 years ago, there are some, there's a cultural gap. So we're going to need to step out of our comfortable 21st century shoes and step into the sandals 3,000 years prior. The text can be divided into three sections. This, this scene, three sections. Verse 1 through 5 is Naomi's plan. Verse 1 through 5 is Naomi's plan. Verse 6 through 9 is Ruth's proposal. And verse 10 through 18 is Boaz's promise. Naomi's plan, Ruth's proposal, Boaz's promise. First, Naomi's plan. Let's get right into it. Verse 1. The Naomi, her mother-in-law of Ruth. So here's the problem. What are we going to do when the harvest is over? How will we live? This is the problem right here at the beginning of chapter 3. She says, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? So, in chapter 2, Ruth is seeking out the well-being of her widowed mother-in-law, Naomi. Ruth makes a move that would risk her life as a young and unmarried Moabite, that detested nation, wandering in the field of strangers in the days of judges, to secure another meal for her destitute mother-in-law, Naomi. Now, here in verse 1, chapter 3, Naomi is seeking out the well-being of her widowed daughter-in-law, Ruth. And so chapter 3 becomes sort of about Naomi, a, a bitter and destitute widow in suffering, stepping out of her despair to serve her unlikely outcast daughter-in-law. And God working through that to do great things, which will culminate in chapter 4. So this is a sign of great things happening for Naomi by God's grace. Call me Mara. Bitterness. Just a moment on this bitterness sucks us into a self-absorbed whirlpool, doesn't it? And the only person who's never been bitter in the world is Jesus. It sucks us into this whirlpool spiraling further and further down into the darkness of self-consumption. And that's where Naomi has been for a while, like, like years. But she is turning her focus to someone and something other than her wants and other than herself and her hurts. I'm not going to focus on my feelings anymore. By God's grace, she's repenting and emerging out of the self-consumption. And in a cheerful demeanor, she looks to the wants of Ruth. This is the fruit of turning from bitterness. And Naomi, Naomi is as clever here as she is kind. There's some great discipleship here. Older woman, more mature woman, sort of, to younger woman discipleship in this passage. What does she mean by seek out security? The Hebrew word there is, is the same one used in 1 9, verse, verse 9, chapter 1, where Naomi says to Oprah and Ruth, to Orpah and Ruth, Oprah. Oprah is not in the book of Ruth, actually. She's probably not even read this book. Naomi says, May the Lord grant that you find rest, each of you in the house of your husband. It's the same word, rest there. So the similarity of the words is not coincidental. Naomi understands first millennium BC ancient East culture that it would be rough for an unmarried Moabite in that day. So when chapter 2 ends, again, how, how are we going to continue to live when we can't 
we can't scavenge off of Boaz's field anymore. She knows, Naomi knows, Boaz is a godly guy that has shown kindness. So perhaps Naomi here has some sanctified frustration. Maybe she wants a grandchild through her only remaining sort of progeny. Ruth's been eating the scraps from his table for a few months, as it were. He doesn't have a wife. She doesn't have a husband. They both love God. To Naomi, it's pretty simple. Why hasn't he got her number yet? And to be fair, Boaz is probably thinking, okay, I know that Ruth is a widow. You know, the time of mourning in those days would be long. I want to give her some space. Even so, Naomi is functioning as a sanctified eHarmony matchmaker. And the answer to her rhetorical question of verse 1 is, of course I should seek rest for you. And the reason she should is not only because of her matchmaker in positions, but because Ruth had taken this radical step of faith, leaving her village. As a young widow, you would never do that. You would never leave your village, your family, much less your nation. To go with a bitter widow, it's risky. She left the, the visible sort of social stability structures to go to in, unstable ones. And so Naomi acts. She's acting out her prayer in verse 9, chapter 1, where she prayed for Ruth to find rest through her husband. Faith acts. Faith doesn't just pray. Faith acts. They may both be destitute widows, with no social sway, but faith will act anyways. So she hopes and prays for Ruth. And it's a wonderful juxtaposition from chapter 2 to 3. Previously, Ruth is using the physical strength of her younger age to bless Naomi by getting her food. Now, in chapter 3, Naomi is using the experiential wisdom of her older age to bless Ruth by maybe getting her a boyfriend and more. And I suppose that's instructive for how life often works well among God's people. Use your resources to bless each other. Verse 2, now is not, so she, Naomi says, now is not Boaz our kinsman with whose maids you were? So her holy scheme is unfolding. Boaz is a relative of her deceased husband, Elimelech. This could be a blessing. He's already showed himself a man of God by doing something very unlikely, radically gracious, and treating Ruth with generosity and purity. Boaz is sort of a distant relative against some cultural gaps here. He could serve as, as one who would give rest and provide security and redemption. Look at that by way of extension. End of verse 2. Behold... He winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. So Naomi says, let's get practical. I know his schedule. I know where he's going to be tonight. She's been spying. Seems that Naomi concocts a plan to sort of overcome Boaz's girlfriend inertia. And it's a plan that's far more daring than introducing them at church and then sneaking out the back door of the conversation. Verse 3, wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself. This is great discipleship. Take a shower, anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. The threshing floor 
was a, a critical place where they would, they would winnow all, all their grain to, to separate it from the chaff. The grain would fall down and be collected. Typically after a day of the fields, uh, a guy would return home. But when the winnowing time came, the men would sleep with their grain pile to guard it from, from thieves. This is like your savings account. You know, this, is your, this is your money for the year in some respects. So they would guard it from thieves and from animals and these kind of things. So Naomi gives, gives Ruth some very helpful discipleship. Bathe. And to a, a 21st century individual, this might seem strange, but back then, no electricity, no running water. The advice she's giving her here in these days was like, like the type of preparation you would do to get married. I mean, you would only bathe for really, really important situations because it was hard to do. Significant events. Best clothes. This might refer to an outer garment, like wrap yourself in a cloak because she's probably going to be sleeping outside. Anoint yourself. Put on some nice perfume. Smell good. No offense. But Ruth is a poor young widow and would look like it. Plus, again, she's probably mourning, though it's maybe been, you know, over a year, mourning the death of her husband, her previous husband. And during that time, you wouldn't do these things. You wouldn't wash, anoint yourself, and you would wear clothing to reveal the sorrow. So if this is the case, Ruth is going to look quite different than when Boaz has seen in the fields for the last few months. By her appearance, she would be communicating very clearly to Boaz. I have sufficiently spent my time of mourning. I'm returning to normal life. You're a good guy. You love God. I'm available if you're interested. Naomi's lived a bit. So she has some great practical wisdom. A little anointing and decorating is a good thing, ladies. It's not a bad thing. And notice she takes the time to come alongside this younger woman to give that practical wisdom. And the younger woman receives her wisdom. Verse 5, all that you say, I'll do. Isn't that instructive for how life should work in the body of Christ? Titus 2 into the New Testament, the more seasoned, experienced sisters come alongside those with a little less to give them some hints and helps in this present life now as a woman of God. And brothers, it's not only the ladies. It's not only the ladies who can tidy up a bit as well. Brothers, uh, the, the operating procedure for dress, the, it's not always best just to whatever your hand finds in the drawer. And put that on. It's not always the most strategic way to serve people in our dress. So verse 3, she says, Don't make yourself known until after he's had his great feast. Because a guy with a full stomach is more easily persuaded. Naomi is as shrewd as a serpent and innocent as a dove. Verse 4, It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies and you shall go and uncover his feet. And lie down, then he'll tell you what you shall do. Again, discipleship. Sneak up on him. Throw the covers off the feet. Lay there and just see what happens. Why throw the covers off his feet? Well, simple. 
Your feet get cold when you're sleeping outside. And this is a creative and subtle way to wake a guy up. Guys like their feet covered when they sleep. But this is a risky move involving great, potentially great scandal. Again, Ruth a foreigner, Ruth a Moabite, unmarried, a nobody in society, and she will approach and address Boaz, an upstanding, successful Israelite guy. Things like this simply were not done. And Moabites were known for reasons like in Numbers 25. Numbers 25, Moabites were known for their sexual immorality. Plus, prostitutes would often solicit their services at the threshing floors. Very common in that day. So this is a huge risk. And on top of that, is all this dressing up and sneaking up, is this presumptuous pride? And for a woman to do this? Is Naomi instructing her to get all dolled up and sort of boisterously show off and manipulate Boaz? Not at all. It's a risky step of faith, but it's not self-centered pride as we will see. It's humility. Ruth has a pure servant's heart. So verse five, it's amazing. She says, all that you say I'll do, but since Ruth is a human, there probably was some internal struggle. We could, we could imagine maybe like, okay, Naomi, so what if he takes me for a prostitute? Uh, what if he sees this as proud presumption and he boots me out of there? What if some other guys see me, this is the days of judges, see me sneaking around in the field at night and whatever? And well, what if other people see this and I bring shame onto Boaz's godly name? This is all just very real life. And Ruth is just super humble. Humility towards Naomi's discipleship and even more humility towards the God who she had recently put faith in. You're going to have to trust God a lot if you're Ruth here. God doesn't tell her beforehand, okay, I know it's a risk, but don't worry, it's going to work out. Ruth has no guarantee of a good outcome. Naomi's plan. Number two, Ruth's proposal. Ruth's proposal, verse 6. So, the plan has been set. Ruth is super humble. Verse 6. So, she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. Wow. Ruth, a new convert. She's a newer believer. Trusts in the Lord rather than her comfort. Trusts in the Lord rather than her safety and her protection. She trusts in the Lord with all her heart and does not lean on her own understanding. I suppose discipleship is like that sometimes. That person discipling me gave me some counsel. I don't know. I'm going to have to trust you, Lord. Verse 7. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the heap of grain. So Boaz had a blessed evening, enjoying God's good provision of a feast. Out to the grain he goes to guard his savings. End of verse 7. And she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. So here it goes. And the narrative here slows way down because this is just great stuff. Every Israelite is on the edge of their seat as they're reading this. 
This is going to get interesting. Sure enough, Ruth demonstrates this great humility. Boaz is snoring away at the grain pile. Ruth in the dark, without a headlamp, without streetlights. She comes secretly and slowly uncovers Boaz's glorious feet. Let's talk about feet for a minute. These are not well podiatrist, well pedicured, 21st century Westerner feet. These are feet feet. These are feety feet. Feet of an older guy who's always worn sandals, who has walked a lot, who has worked in the fields a lot, and existed in the hot Israeli sun a lot. And these are feet that have walked on roads that had lots of animal traffic on them in those days. And they didn't have street cleaners to come every morning and clean up the animal traffic or the evidence thereof. So Boaz isn't winning Ruth's heart by his feet. And there Ruth is, covers off. And she lays by those feet. I'm no relationship expert, but I'm pretty sure that cuddling up to each other's feet isn't something you hear in marriage counseling. On the other hand, we have some engaged people in here, some maybe about to be engaged people, I don't know, I'm not a prophet. Anyone that is willing to get near your feet, that person is special. That's a sign of great sacrificial love. Huh, men. True love is not flowers and chocolate. It's feet. Singles sometimes ask, how do I know if it's God's will for me to marry a person? I'm pretty sure it's God's will if they're willing to get near your feet. And they're not a high-paid podiatrist. I have the book of Ruth here to back me up on that, okay? Verse 8. It happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled. Happened in the middle of the night. Stories that begin that way are not always honorable. The man is startled and bent forward, and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. This is definitely a situation where the word behold is needed. So old Boaz is getting uncomfortable. His feet are cold. Maybe the scent of Ruth's perfume. He's only smelled sweat all his life. He smells this nice perfume. It wakes him up. He stirs a bit, leans forward. His feet are uncovered. And whoa, there is someone sleeping by his feet who wasn't there when he fell asleep. Verse 9. He says, who are you? It's dark. It's groggy. Can't really see. He's, He's rubbing his eyes. Verse 9, and she answered, I am Ruth, your maid, your servant. Your servant maid is the idea. I'm nothing, I'm just a servant. Humility. But Ruth changes up Naomi's instruction here a bit. Okay, remember what Naomi said to her, and watch what Ruth says. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative or a redeemer. 
Ruth is doing the talking now. This is an interesting answer to Boaz's question. Who are you? She proposes to him. Spread your covering. The word translated covering, it can mean your wings. Spread your wings. And the phrase, spread your wings over me in the Old Testament, it's, it's an expression for marriage. So Ruth says, hey, it's Ruth, your servant. Marry me, please. This is not exactly what Naomi has commanded. And so the saying in Proverbs 16.1 is true, right? The plans of the heart belong to man, or in this case, Naomi. But the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. And as we'll study, especially in chapter 4, Ruth's answer certainly was from Yahweh, from the covenant-keeping Lord. This is remarkable. A younger woman proposing to an older man. A peasant worker proposing to a wealthy landowner. A Moabite proposing to an Israelite. Brothers, I've only been engaged once. But I'm not sure if you should expect this approach to engagement right here. However, I suppose if you're as quality of a guy as Boaz... Maybe this will happen. But I I think it's best to just count on getting a ring and taking a knee, man. And if this does happen to any of you unmarried brothers, let us know. You could write a book and make a lot of money. Furthermore, brothers, brothers in Christ, perhaps there are some of you in here who, who could consider throwing your wings over a sister in Christ. Provide her with some love and security. Well, notice what she says. For you are a close relative. That term again, redeemer, the Hebrew word goel. We'll see it often. We'll see it more in chapter 4. Typically, the idea, this idea of the Old Testament redeemer referred to a family member who could help another family member, even a, maybe a distant one who had fallen on hard times, perhaps financially, perhaps they've lost some land and inheritance, had to sell themselves to slavery. From chapter 4, it appears Naomi lost her husband's land, thus she's in need of security. It's all she would have. Again, more next week in chapter 4. In the meantime, again, Naomi did not tell Ruth to say this part. And in her great humility and servant's heart, notice what Ruth is doing. She's looking to make a move that will bring security to her destitute mother-in-law. That's what getting the Redeemer would do. Is life and death for her older mother-in-law and having a Redeemer would mean life. One writer says this, quote, Ruth was not so absorbed by her own aspirations as to forget the one she pledged never to leave or forsake. So godly. And by the way, what a godly way to view marriage. What a godly way to view marriage. Notice how Ruth approaches marriage, recalling the time of history to his judges. People aren't even talking about marriage at this time. Even so, Ruth escapes the cultural plague. She views marriage as holy and sacred. As a, as a selfless endeavor. That's how she views marriage. Entering into a covenant with someone who loves God as providing godly security, not just for herself, but how might this bless others? How, 
How could, how could this marriage be used to bless others? Of course, into the New Testament, we think of the passages on marriage. Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Marriage is a pure, holy, permanent covenant for life. And talk about security. To, to, to image the security that the church has, that every believer has with Christ. Our security in Christ is very, very, very secure. Not because of our works, hallelujah, but because of his death and his perfection and his righteousness and his resurrection. By faith, we have that security. And so marriage is to be a picture, now this side of the cross, a picture of the gospel, of loyal security, of commitment, of the holiness that's to be shown between Christ and his church. A selfless commitment, a death to self to bless others. Christ died to himself, died literally to bless the church. That's how marriage is to be a daunting and a high calling for which we need God's grace every minute. So Ruth's proposal. Finally, Boaz's promise. Boaz's promise, verse 10 to 18. How is he going to respond? Look at verse 10. Then he said, may you be blessed of Yahweh. The the word is translated there. Blessed of Yahweh, my daughter. Ruth breathes a huge sigh of relief. Could have gone way worse than that. Verse 10, you have shown, blessed of Yahweh, my daughter, you have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Her first deed of kindness was the sacrificial service to Naomi, leaving everything again and coming with her from Moab, sticking with her. And her second act of kindness that Boaz is talking about is not only for a godly husband. He's not talking about, oh, it's so kind of you to propose to me. It's not what he's saying. The act of kindness where Ruth would seek out a redeemer for Naomi. Really, this is about Naomi. Like getting life and provision and Ruth is thrown in with it. And Ruth does that on purpose. She's saying, in effect, and we'll see this more in chapter 4, this woman who has struggled and loves God and has suffered needs care. Would you do that? And just, I can be thrown in with the deal. And perhaps Boaz did want to marry her. His response might be an eyebrow raiser for many. Many Israelites reading this long ago, how could Boaz consider marrying a a Moabite? She's, She's from that nation, Moab, that worships Chemosh and is devoted to the religion of Chemosh. Aren't Israelites forbidden from marrying Moabites, Deuteronomy 23. Deuteronomy 23.3, remember it says that, 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 that they're forbidden from worshiping corporately. They're not to marry outside. How, how does this all work? How can Boaz be upstanding? The key is what happened back in Ruth 1.16. Remember there, Ruth 1.16? At Ruth's conversion, she gets converted to the true God. Her repentance and faith, she says, your people will be my people and your God, my God. So Ruth had turned to receive the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of her sin. 
and salvation from our glorious and our merciful and our wonderful God who saves by faith, who saves any by faith. And so the ban of Moabites and marriage and corporate worship during the Old Testament days, that referred to Chemosh worshipers. It was not an ethnic thing, but a spiritual thing. So Ruth is a worshiper of the true God now. She simply bowed the knee in faith and now is eagerly invited to worship in the Old Testament times. And Boaz certainly is permitted to marry a believer in the true God. And so the Old Testament really invites and includes all peoples of the earth to come and find mercy in God. Hence, hence Psalms like Psalm 67. Let the peoples praise you, O God. That word there for peoples, it means the nations. Let all the nations praise you. Let them all come and fear him. They're invited to receive his mercy. And today it's no different. I'm not sure if we have one like full-on Israelite here. Even so, look around. Look at all these non-Israelites we have here, most likely, who have come, have come under the wings of a forgiving God and a merciful God who counts all of our sin to have been paid for in the body and at the cross of Jesus Christ. Sins you haven't even committed. All who come will certainly not be cast away. And so may you all and may we all join Ruth in coming under his wings by grace through faith. Verse 11. Boaz says, Now my daughter, do not fear. I'll do for you whatever you ask. Wow. A a wealthy, successful Israelite man doing whatever a peasant Moabite woman asks. For reason, because all my people in the city know that you are a woman. Excellence. Amen. A few months ago, Ruth rolled into town as an outcast Moabite, a destitute scavenger. Now she's a woman of excellence in the city. And that didn't happen because she's jockeying for power and prestige. It happened God's way. Whoever shall be great among you, Jesus would say a thousand years later, shall be your what? Servant. Self-denial, humility. Verse 12, now it is true, I'm a close relative or, or, or a redeemer. However, oh, there's a however. There's lots of howevers in life. This side of heaven. However, there is, there is one closer than I. So bad news. He says, okay, Ruth, this probably could work. However, there's a redeemer closer than I. In other words, the custom in the law was that the closer relative would take up the cause of the family to redeem them. So there's technically another guy who has priority that, that, that actually has priority over me. And Ruth, he says, in effect, you might have to end up with him. We don't know who this is yet. In chapter 4, we will. You can almost feel Ruth's discouragement. However, and Boaz's humility here is remarkable, isn't it? In effect, he's saying, look, you're a woman of, ex- you're a woman of excellence, but you're not mine, Ruth. Not mine. You're God's. And, and we need to not manipulate the situation. We need to not sin. We don't have to sin for this to work out. Have you ever been tempted to do that in relationships? 
if this is going to work, I better, I better. We need to trust God. Verse 13. Remain this night, and when the morning comes, if he'll redeem you, good. His humility. I mean, he, he likes her. Oh, that's good if he'll redeem you. I'm going to trust God. Let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as Yahweh lives. Obviously, he's interested, but he's more interested in faithfulness to God and obedience to God than he is getting his way, even though it would be a good thing. And he says, stay here until, lie down until morning because it would be super risky. Some commentators claim Boaz and Ruth are committing fornication and sexual sin here. There's nothing in the text to indicate that. Foolishness. Straightforward reading. Ruth is a woman of excellence. It's not happening. So verse 14. So she lay down at his feet until morning and rose before, before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Boaz protects her again and again. Verse 15. Again, he said, give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So she held it and he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city, probably 20, maybe more pounds of food, which would be several days of meals, several days worth of food. And again, worth a lot of money in that time. Verse 16, when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did it go, my daughter? And the Hebrew doesn't say that. The Hebrew literally says, who are you? Naomi says, who are you, my daughter? Why did she say that? Who do you belong to? What's your new identity? Do you have a new identity now? And she told her all that the man had done for her. Verse 17, she said, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Naomi is relieved that Boaz didn't boot her back to Moab. Verse 18, then she said, wait, my daughter, until, ah, waiting is hard, wait until you know how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. Naomi knows that Boaz is a godly, selfless guy, and he will, he will search this out right away, find out who the other redeemer is, and if, he'll take Naomi and Ruth under his wings. But it remains to be seen. And so we're left with a cliffhanger for next week. A couple of quick so what's though. By way of digression, a couple observations. Four observations. We could sort of, a couple things we could note here. Four observations on life's uncertainties. Number one, sometimes acting in faith is a risk. Living this life, following God, sometimes it's a risk from what we can see, isn't it? Faith takes risks at times. Naomi's plan to bless Ruth and continue the family line, it's risky. What Ruth does is super risky. Many of life's decisions will involve fear, uncertainty, where you're not going to be guaranteed a favorable outcome. It's not this thing where, oh, God is so good, and I know I'm going to heaven, so this thing in my life now before heaven is going to, it's all going to work out favorably. It's not. Ruth and Naomi, they're not omniscient. Ruth is walking to the threshing floor, just like preaching to herself. 
She doesn't know. That's how it is. We have some big or small life decision to make. It could go wrong. We're fearful. We're anxious. And so there's a risk. You might be in a situation where things could get misconstrued. You could be severely misunderstood. And in a world where God has chosen not to reveal every detail of our, of our very normal life, it's going to require stepping out in faith, looking to the word of God. Stepping out of faith, by the way, doesn't mean wait for a feeling. It doesn't mean wait for a voice. Uh, that's, that's called foolishness, actually, the Bible calls that. Wait for the Spirit to speak to me. He speaks to us right here. By trusting God, searching out his word. It's going to be a risk sometimes, and this is not a ticket for careless, self-centered decision-making. Like, oh, I'm going to take this risk because it's going to be, you know, it's going to be great for me. I have to be careful. But a humble trust in God. We're not guaranteed things are always going to work out. We've got to trust God. Things are, always going, things are definitely going to work out well in heaven. But for, for now, you know, we don't, we don't get all of our decisions in like this pre-packaged manner and we're not handed like a step-by-step protocol for, okay, here's this hard thing, do this, it's going to be real, it's going to be fail-proof and it's going to be discomfort-proof. And it's, we're not talking about, neither are we talking about like a no guts, no glory kind of thing. That's, again, that's foolishness. It's the kind of thing where it's like, okay, Lord, I've sought counsel, I'm digging into your word, I'm not trusting in my feelings, I'm not trusting in, in inclinations or whatever that is. I'm trusting in what your spirit has said in your word. I'm not violating scripture. I'm praying. I'm going to venture out on the limb of faith, hoping that providence keeps it from breaking. Number two. God, number two, may allow us to be in uncertain situations so that we'd learn he's a greater security than comfort. God, like Naomi and Ruth, may allow us to be in uncertain situations so that we would learn that he is a greater security than comfort. That is on display in chapter 3. They have no idea that chapter 4 exists yet when they're living the life of chapter 3. Neither does Boaz. They might be thinking, okay, God, but, you know, Ruth and Boaz, but, I mean, we love each other. This, this feels right. We love God. We're, you know, and Naomi needs security. Why, why wouldn't you just make this work out? Why does this have to be so uncertain? God's going to provide for them, but they don't know how, and, and they have quite a conundrum on their hands. Who's this other guy? At times, God will allow us to be in fearful, uncertain situations so that we would learn that he's a greater security than knowing what's going to happen tomorrow. Number three, like all of life, humility is key during uncertain times. Like all of life, humility. Or we could say God-centered self-denial is key 
during uncertain times. And Ruth is a model. Isn't she? Isn't she a model of humility? I mean, she leaves Moab. Israel with destitute Naomi. And when she does that, she's not making a strategic career move like we do. She's not thinking, oh, what fun place do I, do I want to live in? What good job do I want? Where do I, where do I want to go to fulfill all my dreams? Where should I go that, 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 that I would like the best and be the most comfortable? What cool adventure do I want to go on for Ruth that's not even in her thinking? The I and the me are gone. She loves God is an example of humility. She loves people. She's died to herself and is showing us what God-centered humility looks like. And no matter how this works, she will be blessed because she's died to herself. And that right there is the key that unlocks the door of blessing. God-centered death to self. Our Savior is the supreme model of that, isn't he? Every moment for him was epic humility. Stepping out of heaven to become a, this little thing, a little puny human. Living every day in obedience and submission to the Bible. In very unideal circumstances. Going to the cross to be sentenced in our place for our hell. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Humility. Uh, Fourth and finally, in uncertain situations, we often have to wait. And in these uncertain, risky situations, we often have to wait. Wait on the Lord. And, And sometimes it's longer than shorter. Ruth puts herself out there, puts, her, puts herself and Naomi on the line. They have nothing. The harvest is over. Society is not benevolent to women in their circumstances. So after Ruth proposes to Boaz and asks for Naomi to be taken care of as well, I bet she wanted an answer soon. Typically when a guy proposes to a, to a girl, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't say, well, go ahead and tell me in like a week. He wants to know now. I bet she was nervous. If this doesn't work out, what, what, what will I do for Naomi? And Naomi's thinking, if this doesn't work out, what will I do for Ruth? They had no other option but to wait on the Lord. In what way is the Lord asking you to wait on him right now? Boaz says, oh, there's this other relative beyond me. We're not going to elope. We're not going to go to Vegas. We're going to wait on the Lord. I mean, Boaz too, he, he says, we're going to wait. We're going to do this right. As we read in Psalm 37, 34 in the opener, Psalm 37, 34, wait for Yahweh. Wait for the Lord and keep his way. He will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you'll see it. You'll see it. There's one thing the Lord, however, never asks us to wait for. And that's the forgiveness of our sin. When you come to him and you bow the knee in faith to Jesus Christ, 
He doesn't say, oh, you're going to have to wait on that. I don't know. Jesus says, all who come to me, I'll cast none away. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for his grace. Thank you for his kindness. Thank you for your mercy that you have shown through the cross, this side of the cross. On this side of the cross, we see that and we rejoice. Father, thank you for the riches of your word, for the riches that are in the book of Ruth. May your spirit transform us through our study, through these inerrant, infallible words that we've studied, that we would all go out from here saved by faith in Christ, refreshed, eager to trust you in all that life throws at us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.